I can't tell you how much I've been looking forward to this. Really? Sarah Sweden. Yeah, exactly. You pronounced it correctly. Did I say that right? Yes. I've been watching I've been watching the YouTube video of you at which was it? CSS Summit? CSS Conf. CSS Conf. Yes. No, I've been practicing. It would get us off to a really poor start if I pronounced your name wrong. Yeah. Let me try let me try and say this. Okay. Turhayib. Uh could you repeat that? Turhayib. No, you see I'm rubbish. I d- I didn't understand that at all. No, you see I thought that see I'd written it down phonetically, but obviously I hadn't written it down properly. I was trying to say welcome in Arabic. Ah, uh, welcome. Uh, usually when you want to say welcome in Arabic you say ahlan. Ahlan wa sahlan. That's not what Google Translate told me. Yeah, by the way, uh, a couple of days ago when you were translating, I think you were translating cheers when I said cheers. Yeah. Yeah, it was translated to fun. It's kind of about the same. <laughs> yeah, but it, you know, in Arabic, every single word um, matters and is very different from the other. You know, sometimes if you just add a letter in between two other letters, the, the meaning is completely different. Um, for example, there is um, hub and harb. Uh, hub is made up of two letters. Uh, if you add a letter in between, which is the ra, it becomes, uh, hub means love. And if you add the ra, it becomes war. Two completely different meanings, just by adding one letter. Maybe that's one thing you can do this morning while we're recording yeah. this. You can teach me some Arabic. Yeah, I plan to. <laughs> some useful Arabic phrases. Can you can you pronounce, uh, for example, hub? Hub. Oh, you did pronounce it. Not bad. You know, we had we once had this uh, German friend, and she was coming over. Uh, one of my uh, one of my brothers has this ha letter in his name. And so she, she couldn't pronounce it. No matter how how much she tried, she couldn't pronounce it. I am I'm not bad with pronunciations of languages. Um, I don't speak many. I mean, I mean, I, I speak a little bit of French, and I once started to learn to speak Russian. Oh, really? I can't remember much about it anymore. But the guy that was teaching me did say that I had uh, I had Ukrainian pronunciation. Oh, nice. Which is not quite not quite right. I don't think. I don't know. I wouldn't know. I've wanted to get you on the show for a while for lots of different reasons, not just because I'm an enormous fan of your writing. Thank you so much. I think you've been writing some of the most, well, the most interesting articles about CSS and and SVG lately as well. So maybe we can talk about that a little later. Yeah, that would be great. I wanted to talk to you as well because I think that Coming from where you do, coming from where you live in Lebanon. Yeah. If that's going to give you experiences and it's give you, going to give you a perspective about what we do on the web that we don't hear about an awful lot. So I thought that could be interesting. Yeah. There's also a lot of misconceptions about Lebanon. I mean, people have like really, they, they have this image about Lebanon that is so completely not true. I was very surprised when I was at CSS Conf and I was talking to some people and they were like, Really? I had no idea Lebanon was like that. And I was like, I thought you knew. Really, I had no idea that the West has such a different view of Lebanon. On They think that we have, we, we're this war zone. I mean, yes, we're in the middle of a war zone and we have had our share of wars and I hope we don't have them again. But it's not very stable here. It's not as stable as it is in the West, but it's also not as 
as everyone might think, uh, one of one of my friends at CSS Conf, she was she was telling me that she was uh, hoping that she could get to visit Lebanon someday. So I was like, yeah, do it. You, you're going to love it. So she asked me, do I have to wear a veil when I come to Lebanon? I was like, what? No, really. Um, there is no such thing in Lebanon. Lebanon has all kinds of religions, all kinds of people. Um, there is no such thing as you have to wear a veil, you have to do this or do that. It's a very open-minded country. Um, the nature here, here is beautiful. It's not, you know, like all desert as it is in Saudi Arabia, for example. We have a beautiful nature, beautiful people, uh, delicious food. I think most people know that. Yeah, so it was really weird, you know, hearing people have certain ideas about Lebanon that are not true. I had no idea the West thought that about us. So it, it, it was really nice for me to be able to maybe change that, change the way they look at us. That's one of many reasons why I love doing what I do now. I was reading up about where you live in Tyre. Yes. That's what we call it. Do you call it something else? Yeah, we call it Sur. I don't know. I did a little bit of reading. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I, no, I love, I love learning about different cultures and, uh, and different places. I mean, traveling is, is the thing that, that we love to do. I mean, we've been lucky the last few years because we've been doing it a lot for work. But we always say that if we were to, you know, win the lottery and not have to worry about earning money, um, the thing that we would do, we wouldn't go off and buy expensive cars or a big house or something like that. We would just travel. Yeah, tra traveling is, is, is what we love to do. And it's a uh, really nice thing. No, it's, it's fabulous. And there are certain parts of the world that, you know, that I would love, love to go to. And certainly, you know, the Middle East is, is definitely one of those, but Tyre. Tyre, I was reading, it's it's a really historic city. Yes, it is. I mean, you've got some fantastic examples of Roman architecture. There's this thing called the Albas. Albas, yeah. This is one of the most uh, crowded and less organized areas of Tyre, really. But there's a hippodrome there. Isn't there an old Roman hippodrome? Is that at Albas? Yeah, there is one there, but the most famous one is inside Tyre. It's next to the sea. Exactly. You could stand there. Remember the picture that I once took and, um, tweeted? Mm. Yeah. Th those, uh, those ruins are the most famous ones in Tyre. I don't know. I, I, I look at some of these fabulous historical, you know, places and artifacts and, and all this stuff and, particularly in the Middle East. And you think, you know, it, it would just be so great if these things belong to everybody. It's almost as if that people shouldn't be allowed to control, you know, one group shouldn't be allowed to control this area. You know, one country shouldn't be allowed to control this area because it just, it's so historically important. It's just transcends everything that's kind of going on now. Yeah. Tell me about it. I'm one of uh, many person, uh, Persons? No, not persons. People. I'm one of many that really hate the concept of borders, really, especially with, with everything that's been going on with the visas. So, yeah, I do agree. So I want to visit. I want to come down there. You should. You should. It takes, I, well, I can fly from London to Beirut, which I think is the closest airport. It takes five hours. Yeah. And it's £800, which is not bad. £800 return. That's on... Um, Middle Eastern Airlines. I've never flown them before. Uh, I haven't either. Um, I don't know if I have when I was eight years old. I haven't um, fl fly. No. Okay. Now I'm having trouble 
finding the right past tense. It happens to me all the time. Yeah. So it's okay. So let's just rephrase it. It's been over 20 years since I got on a plane uh, until I did recently for CSS Conf, which is very weird to hear. I know, but yeah, it's true. I've always been, you know, I don't even go out much here. I live in a small town here and most of the people in the town don't even know I exist. Is there a, um, is there a, a web scene or a technical industry entire or are you doing work for people all over the world uh no i don't know anyone entire that works as a web developer i'm pretty sure that there may be there are a few um i think i got contacted a few days ago by someone who does you know work in the web industry entire but that was the first time ever um there are i know that there are uh, quite a few developers in beirut but I don't know any of those either. I only know like a couple of people who used to be with me in college, but that's pretty much it. I'm not in contact with any web developer here in Lebanon at all. Does that make you feel lonely, professionally lonely? Uh, I think so. I don't usually feel lonely, but I do realize that I may be lonely, feeling lonely without realizing it because, you know, once I see a Lebanese web developer online or someone contacts me via email or via Twitter, I feel so happy. It's like, oh my God, finally a Lebanese web developer. So it's then when, when I realized that I do, yeah, I may be feeling lonely, but not realizing it. Because I mean, I, I thought that we lived in, in the back of beyond, as we say. Yeah, for me, everything has happened elsewhere too. Uh, I've gotten some offers from people in Lebanon, but I've never been able to actually do them because I'm, I've always been preoccupied with other work. So I haven't had the chance to work with anyone locally yet. So you're about two and a half hours from Beirut by bus. Uh, by bus? Well, it depends on the speed of the bus. Some buses are really slow. It takes like an hour and a half to go there. Um, but with a, the kind of fast one I usually get in an hour. I just want to come. Maybe I should just visit. Yeah, you should. <laughs> well, I've got a free week at the end of August now that I'm not going to Iraq. Yeah. Which I'm actually very sad about. I really wish that that, that trip was still on. And the Kurdish region that I was going to go to um, still is, you know, it's it's safe. So, so they say they don't advise against traveling there. But of course, the problem is, is that lots of the Iraqi people that would have been traveling to this workshop, people coming up from uh, Baghdad, they're not able to travel up to play in the orchestra and, uh, and help at the event. So, you know, I, I might have been able to get there myself, but nobody else would, which is a real shame. It's really not safe. I'm really glad your, your flight got canceled. No, the flight is still, um, is, is still valid. We haven't uh, we haven't got the refund yet. The... Yeah, I mean, you know, the trip. Okay, I chose the wrong word. The no, 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 no. But it's it's strange. The the funny thing is, is that if the if if the British Foreign Office um, advise against travel, then we will get a full refund on the flight. Yes. If they don't, um, then we basically lose the money, which means that the charity loses the money, which is just such a shame. Yeah. Well, didn't they advise against traveling? They're not advising against traveling to the Kurdish region. Oh. We would fly directly into that area, into, uh, I think they pronounce it Sulaymaniyah. That's, again, yeah. it's my terrible Arabic pronunciation. <laughs> the official pronunciation is As-Sulaymaniyah. So there you go. As-Sulaymaniyah. I've got a lot to learn. 
Arabic language is a fascinating language, really. I'm very, very, very proud to have it as my native language. Maybe we should talk about how easy it is for you to travel when you want to, to conferences, etc. Yeah, it's not easy. It's not easy. In terms of visas and stuff. But before we do that, before we do that, can I talk about our first sponsor? Yes, of course. It is a conference. And this time it's a conference for iOS, Android, and Windows developers. And it's called the Native Summit. The Native Summit. Yeah, I keep reading that as Naked Summit. I need to be careful with that. You do. We don't, you want, do. We don't want to get any more angry letters. But Native Yes, Native Summit is a half-day event that's happening at the Genesis Cinema in London on September 9th. Now, although I use native apps every day, I don't know anything at all about how to design or develop them. That makes two of us. Native Summit, though, has four great speakers from companies like Spotify, Us2 Games and Microsoft who can teach me and you. Yeah, that would be nice. You know, when I first started developing, when I started this whole web development thing, my first goal before, uh, you know, getting into actually doing the coding, I had this goal in my head that I wanted to be a Windows developer. Wow. Yeah. You must be the the only person that wakes up in the morning and thinks I'm going to be a Windows developer. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so these speakers, Mike Lee, who's an ex-Apple engineer, he'll be talking about Apple good, why Apple is so much better than their competitors in so many ways, and how we could, as he says, steal some of that magic for ourselves. Eric Hellman works at Spotify, and he'll be talking about the problems with Android how to deal with its most common problems and how you can use Google Play services in your app to get up and running with the minimum amount of work. Mike Tolte from Microsoft. He's got a fabulously tongue-in-cheek talk title. Microsoft has an app platform with interesting bits. And in his slide-free session, he'll write code to show some of the areas where Microsoft has taken a different approach around languages, frameworks, tools, and services. And he'll talk about the approach of building native applications with HTML and JavaScript and look at how to target an app across a broad range of devices with varying screens and input mechanisms. And then finally, there's a panel chaired by Margaret Gold, where speakers will be quizzed by both Margaret and the audience. That sounds interesting. That sounds fascinating. Tickets to the Native Summit are on sale now, and I can't quite believe this. They are only 15 of our British pounds. What a bargain. To get yours, head to unfinished.bz slash Native Summit, and they'll know we sent you. Yeah, that sounds cool. I have no idea at all about anything to do with native development or design. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> I mean, I know a lot of people will put on their you know, their websites, their portfolios or something they'll put on, you know, app design. But I've always thought that it's a very different thing to the sort of stuff that I do. Yeah, I agree. It is. I usually, I used, I used to see all these kinds of designs on Dribble and I used to be like, wow, I wish I could do that, but I'm totally not a designer. I, I have to, to, to decline a lot of design offers that I get. Um, I don't know if I should emphasize in some way that I'm a front end developer, like only a front end developer. I don't do design work. I wish I could. What stops you? I don't know. I really don't. Maybe I think that the, the most, um, you know, the biggest obstacle is 
uh, I can imagine trying to understand what my client wants. I have no idea how designers usually work with their clients, what the procedure is, what kind of questions they ask. Um, once um, I saw some questions by Dan Moll, and I was very, very intrigued. And I think I remember I bookmarked his article because I'm really interested in this. I wish there were more articles out there that teach people, you know, how to, how to, um, not how to design like what colors to use or what frameworks to use, but more like the procedure, how to deal with the client, how to, how to get to the point where you know exactly what the client's, a client is trying to achieve and where to start and how to do that. That is by far my biggest obstacle. I have no idea how to do it. And so I never try. Do you know, it's really funny, but often clients don't know how to do that either. And one of the things that we've found over the years is if you explain a process to somebody, um, because it's not just about, you know, client and designer, it's about generally two people or two groups of people that haven't worked together before, you know, getting to know them, you know, getting mm -hmm. to know what they like and dislike and what their goals are and things like that. Um, and having a process and, and it's not the same process for every designer, I'm sure, but this kind of works of for us in that we have a, just a sort of a, a short, almost like an interview phase, really. Um, and I think Paul Boag at Headscape does a similar kind of thing where we, we do it on two sides. We do it for branding where we talk to people in a sort of a structured way to try to understand what they think that their company is about. We ask them questions like, um, if you were to personify your company, if you, um, who would that person be? And a lot of people start off by talking about generics and we like to make, we like to make them think about a specific person. So sometimes we'll even ask them if, if somebody was advertising your company and they were doing like a radio spot, who, who would do the voiceover? That always gets people thinking. Yeah. That's, that's, that got me thinking. Because what happens then is that they start, they start thinking about tone of voice and about maybe about how friendly their company is or how authoritative their company is. So every single person mentions Morgan Freeman at some point in the conversation. Really? <laughs> Everyone. Yeah. That's interesting. Because he's friendly and he has a beautiful tone of voice, but he's also authoritative without being an authority figure. And that's what a lot of people think that their brand is about or like to think that their brand is about. Yeah. So we have this process and then we have similar processes where we try to understand what the client thinks. And the other thing that we do, which they seem to really like actually, which is more of a UXy thing rather than a designy thing, I think, but it seems to work for us is that when we start talking with them about personas and we start um, asking them to identify their customers, they start to really open up. And it's through these sort of more structured conversations that we can get an idea as to what they're looking for, but we can also get an idea as to their design sensibilities too, you know, what they're going to like and what they're not going to like. I think with the right framework, anybody can do it really. Yeah, but I would need some practice, I think. 
you know, it's always hard to do it the first time. I've often heard developers say, well, I don't do design. I can't do design. And people used to say, oh, well, I wasn't good at art at school or I can't draw. But being good at art at school or not being good at drawing is a, is a personal judgment. You know, everybody can do it. Everybody can make a mark on a piece of paper. How good that is, 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 is a judgment and it, it's very subjective. But I think that, you know, I've, I've met and I've worked with lots of developers who have very good design sensibilities. You know, they can understand design even if they don't originate the idea. Yeah, I think I can understand. And I can usually when someone, I love it actually, when someone asks me for feedback about a design, I can um, find certain things that need to be improved. I can give a sort of professional, I think, um, feedback, but I don't know about, you know, me starting the whole design, me coming up with the design. I'm better at giving feedback about a design than I am at designing. Although I do draw, I draw really well, well, based on, you know, what people say. I really do draw, but I don't see myself designing. Is it something that you want to do? Yes, definitely. I definitely think that there's a role for um, a critic in a way, not in a, not as part of the design process. Um, I suppose an art director or a, a creative kind of editing role, you know, somebody that can look at something and, and give a, an informed opinion as to how to make it better without necessarily designing themselves. And that's something that, that anyone can do. Yeah. I love doing it. I really do. I don't know. I always like to imagine myself as the user, not the designer. And that is when I can find stuff that need improvement or stuff that needs to be changed. Or for example, something that's just visually not obvious. I mean, sometimes, um, I have been, you know, shown some designs where buttons were too close to each other or there were different styles of buttons and, I couldn't differentiate between them. So I would be like, okay, what is this supposed to mean? What is, why are these grouped together when they don't seem really related? I mean, they are visually related as a group, but they, they're not really functionally related. So I start asking these questions and it's based on my questions, based on my questions that I give the feedback. I give the feedback as a user, not as a designer most of the time. And I really enjoy doing that. See, that's, a very particular aspect of what we do, I think. I mean, I, I struggle with this. I, I've been thinking and writing and, and, and talking about this a little bit more recently because that to me is very much a kind of a, a practical application for design. I mean, we're thinking about user experience there, I suppose. We're thinking about usability. Um, yes. Which is definitely an important facet, but it's not the only facet of design. It's the one that a lot of people talk about though, right now. Um, I think yes. it's the lot, it's the one that I think that we are in general as an industry kind of struggling with, um, potentially defining what design is in this new context. Mm -hmm. And certainly there's a lot of uh, discussions about what it is that we actually make when we make a website or a web application. You know, is it, is it much more to do with kind of uh, meaning and expression and communication, or is it much more to do with product design, for example? I mean, people even call themselves digital product designers these days because people are treating this much more as a science, I suppose. Yeah, I still can't tell the difference between these different kinds of jobs. I mean, product designer and UXer. 
you know, UX designer. And I, I can't see the difference. For, for me, they're somehow all kind of related and they all focus on how the user or the customer is going to see the product, be that an application, website or physical product. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I go backwards and forwards on this um, because a lot of the work that I like to do is the much more, I call it creative, although creative is an odd word to apply really. But I like to do the projects where we're really trying to communicate a message, you know, particularly with, with selling a product. And I'm not talking about, you know, the machinery of a product catalog. I'm talking about actually getting people emotionally ready to buy something. Those are the things I really like to do. Yeah, it's, it's really nice. I mean, it's the final touches. It's these kind of kinds of touches that actually make a product successful or not. I don't care really about, well, I do care about the colors and the overall design, but it's not going to be successful if, if the user just looks at it, at it and doesn't know what to do with it. No, that's very true. But it's also not going to be successful if you don't draw people in. Um, and once somebody's using it, then, then obviously it has to be usable. But I always think that we mustn't forget the sizzle, as we would say. You know, you're trying to sell the sizzle, not the sausage. I'm one of those people that I would, I would stop using an app if it doesn't look good, really. That's one of the reasons why I switched from, from, um, Inkscape recently for my SVG work from Inkscape to Adobe Illustrator. I just couldn't stand the UI. Everyone says that, uh, I forgot its name. I just said it. God. Inkscape. Yes, Inkscape. Yeah, everyone says that it's so good, it's so easy to use, it's so easy to learn, and it's very functional, it's really great, but I couldn't stand it because it's just so ugly compared to Adobe Illustrator. You've been doing a lot with SVG recently. Yes. You spoke at yeah, CSS Conference. Was that in Florida? Yes, Florida. Amelia Island. I've never been there. Me neither. It was my first time. You were talking about styling and animating scalable vector graphics with CSS. Yes. They've definitely become your thing. Yes, they are like, I don't know. It's been a long time since I've been really passionate about something like this. At first it was CSS shapes. And then as soon as I started digging into SVG, I'm just obsessed right now. Well, I want to talk about SVG a bit later. Let's. Let's. Because, uh, yeah, I know it's your thing. And I know it's something that we need to be doing a hell of a lot more. Yes, definitely. Just speaking about conferences for a second, because we touched on this earlier on. You seem to, as well as writing about SVG and spending a lot of time doing that, you seem to spend an enormous amount of time applying for visas to go places. Yes, yes. This must be I hate so that. frustrating. More than you can imagine. Like really, I've been, I've been postponing starting that application for two days. I should have started it two days ago, but every time I think about it, I'm just like, ah, I don't want to do it. Like really, I, I hate it. You obviously got a visa to go to the US, which is no mean feat, but you weren't able to get a visa to come to the UK this year. Yeah. I was supposed to speak at the future web design conference. Uh, it was actually, you know, before, uh, before Michelle invited me to speak at the conference, I, I never even thought about doing it, about speaking. So I had never even thought about visiting the UK. And, um, so she invited me. I had to think about it because, I mean, it was something totally new to me. Everyone was very encouraging, like, do it, do it. Why wouldn't you want to do it? So I was like, okay. 
Um, I started digging uh, because I haven't traveled in over 20 years, so I had no idea what I was supposed to do and not do. Um, it turned out I had to apply for a visa, of course. Um, so I, I did it. It was my first ever visa application process. Uh, it was so far the worst experience. Uh, you know, uh, the online application was awful. The forms, um, not only are they ugly, but, you know, I kept filling this form and clicking the next button. Whenever I click the next button, you know, whenever you finish one part of the form, you get this green, uh, you know, um, the label of that page becomes green. It's, it shows you that you finished that section. Okay, so whenever I finish the section, I click the next button, I got the black label, not the green one. And then so I went back and I saw that half of the form was not even filled. I did fill it 100%. The information was 100% true. But somehow it kept, you know, emptying itself. The online application was so long. So lots, a lot of information was required. I mean, I'm comparing it right now to the American visa application process. The American application process was so easy, so simple, so light. The only way I could explain it is using the word light. It was a breeze. It didn't take a lot of time. The UX was great online. We had a lot of options. Um, for example, in the British application, um, they used to ask about specific numbers. And being a freelancer, there were certain fields that I could not specify a specific number for because they are very well they are variables there was no way i could add that in the american application there was an option you could add a add a not applicable and then add a note as to why it's not applicable yeah so filling the forms was ugly uh the ux was ugly uh the process of going back and forth to beirut also was ugly i had to wait for hours and then when I finally got, I got the letter, uh, the message, the SMS telling me that I should go to collect my papers. Um, I was supposed to get all of the papers back, but I only got my passport back. And there was this paper. And as soon as I opened it, I read the refusal word. I swear, I, I, I was in shock. I was in a taxi heading back home and I opened the, the folder and there was this refusal to enter I couldn't process it for a minute. I was like, I had to read it like four or five times to finally understand that, yeah, I'm not allowed to get into the UK. And my first reaction was, why? Yeah. Like, really? I had no intentions at all. You know, I would have even, I wouldn't have even thought about visiting the UK if it weren't for the conference. And so I started reading the, uh, reading the reasons and there was this, um, I'm going to say this between quotes. He wasn't satisfied with my intentions in the UK and he didn't, it, it was kind of like he called me a liar and yeah. that I wasn't going, I wasn't going there to speak at a conference and that I wasn't going there for two days only. So he was, uh, I think that's, that's a form of arrogance really for them to expect me to be going there to stay there. I would yeah. never ever think about living in the UK really. So I was really in shock and it was a horrible experience. I mean, we, I suppose Brits, we, we take travel for granted for the most part. Um, yes. I mean, we have the visa exchange program with the U S and it's often quite difficult to get in 
and I don't mean that in a, in a certainly not as difficult as you experienced, but you know, we'll get, we'll, we'll get a lot of grilling at the airport when we land, you know, that I've, I've stood there for 20 minutes answering questions in, you know, Boston, for example, because, you know, they do treat you badly before, you know, they treat you with suspicion, you know, before you get in. It's weird. That didn't happen with me. You know, the American visa process was amazingly simple and People were so nice, especially here at the embassy. There was only the security guy out on the gate that he was so like too serious, like really too serious. But everyone else was super nice. There was suspicion, definitely. I didn't stand for 20 minutes, for example, like you. I got only asked a few questions and I just passed. Maybe I look suspicious. I don't know. You know, we, we take it pretty much for granted. I mean, I can, you know, I can get on a plane tomorrow and go to Australia if I want to. Um, the visa application, you know, the, the visa thing for, um, for Japan, which, which I go to is pretty straightforward. I went to Russia a few years ago and I had to send my passport to the Russian embassy, but even that was, um, it took, it took a couple of weeks, but it, it wasn't any doubt that I was going to get the visa. You know, there, it, there wasn't, they weren't ever going to refuse me to to go to to Chelyabinsk. So I think we take it for granted. And, you know, it's, it's interesting talking to you because obviously that's you, you can't do that. Yeah, I wish I could. Um, I also I may be applying, reapplying for the British visa again this year, and I'm really dreading it. Well, I'm sure that if there's any help that you need in terms of support or letters or information or whatever, then, you know, I'll help you. And I think that another Thank you. few thousand people who are probably listening to this would do exactly the same. <laughs> well, thank you very much, all of you. But I don't know if that's going to be enough for them. Uh, we'll see. Uh, the Schengen visa, I'm going to be applying for it too. And I'm dreading this even more than the British one, to be honest. Which one is this? The Schengen visa. Um, Schengen. Do you know it? Schengen? Yeah, it allows you to, you know, to enter the Schengen countries in the in Europe. Uh, the UK isn't one of them. I so, have no clue about this. No really? idea. No, no idea. Well, the, the thing is that um, I have several conferences scheduled in Europe. Some of them are announced, like from the front and uh, making web in Norway. But there are also three other conferences that are still not announced because of the visa stuff. I mean, I'd rather not announce, you know, it's it's easier to, you know, just not tell anyone about it. And if I don't get the visa, well, then I'm not going to be speaking there. But telling everyone that I am going to speak at a conference and then not getting the visa, that's like oh, that's, a big disappointment. Yeah, it is. Yeah, so there are a few conferences. I have actually five conferences in Europe in less than six weeks. If I get the Schengen visa, if I don't get it, five conferences are going to be cancelled. It's such a shame. I mean, you know, you mentioned earlier on about this, about your dislike of borders, but it just makes no sense. It makes no sense why we can't just travel across borders this way. You know, it's not as if you're, you know, you're coming here to, to work or to stay for an extended period. You've got no desire to do that. None at all. But, you know, to be able to go into somewhere and essentially it's just business, isn't it? And then come out again. I don't see why they would put such restrictions on you. It definitely has something to do with me being Lebanese, which I'm very proud of, by the way. Um, but everyone seems to have, like, like I said before, um, they seem to have this misconception about us um, because most of the terrorists out there, I think, are Arabs. So, the, so every 
Arab in the world has to suffer from being a suspect for terrorism. I would never, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what I, what I should do to change that. I don't know. I don't really. think there is anything that you can do. I don't know. You know, one of uh, the aspects of speaking at conferences that I really love, um, when I was at CSS Conf, I'm not really sure if I should be loving this or be um, sad about it. Um, I love being able to show the world that we're not as everyone thinks we are or as most people thinks we are. Um, once when I was talking, when I first started web development, when I, when I first started, uh, the web development thing, I was talking to an Italian friend and he was like, I would have never imagined that a Lebanese girl would be a web developer. So I was like, why? He said that he always imagined us as, uh, being, you know, women covered, all covered up in black, not even our faces would be showing. And, you know, just sitting at home and raising kids. And I was like, what? Like, really, there is, they, everyone in the world, most of the West, I'm not going to say everyone, no, most of the people have this misconception and weird ideas about us. And it's a real pleasure for me. I'm really happy to, to play, even if it's just a very simple role, but it is a role in changing that. I mean, a lot of people at CSS Conf, um, you know, there's this thing, uh, I'm, I wanted to talk about it and here I'm going to do it now. You know, this thing about me handshaking men. You remember yeah. me tweeting about it? I do it? remember this. Yeah. Yeah. So the thing is that Muslim girls, especially if they are veiled, we don't handshake men. It's, and it's only just with men. You know, the veil is just the physical thing. And there are a lot of other traditions and things that come with the veil. So handshaking men or any kind of physical contact, you know, like, Hugging included, for example, we don't do that. And it's kind of a relief for me, you know, being an introvert and, you know, preferring less physical contact. So I, I do like that. And when I was at CSS Conf, um, I wish I could show you how we do that right now, but because it's a podcast, I'm not going to be able to show you. And I'm, con I'm, I'm usually, whenever I remember, um, CSS Conf, I just keep beating myself for not doing it. You know, the way we greet people, everyone asks me on Twitter, okay, if you don't handshake men, then how do you greet people? Well, it's very simple. A lot of uh, guys at CSS Conf came over and offered to shake me their hand. And my first reaction was I just put my hand over at my chest, you know, just below uh, the neck. Yeah. This is how we do it. For them, it may have been a way for me, um, you know, not wanting to touch them or something, but it's not that it's, this is how we do it. Usually, even if a guy here in Lebanon, if a man comes and wants to greet me, he just puts his hand on his chest with a, with a slight nod and says, well, hello, or assalamu alaikum or something like that. So this is how we do it. We don't offer to shake hands. I'm, I don't take it as an offense if someone doesn't offer to shake my hand. And I was very worried about them being offended by me not shaking their hands. So Nicole Sullivan, she talked about this uh, at the end of her talk, and she told them about this uh, just so that, you know, we'd avoid some kind of embarrassment every time someone wanted to offer to shake my hand. So she told them, but this kind of turned into an awkward thing later because even women were hesitant. You know, there was there were these couple of women who wanted to greet me and she didn't know whether she would she should offer to shake my hand or not. It was kind of fun, funny, not fun, but yeah, it is awkward too. So I offered her my hand and I said, no, I do shake hands with women. I just don't shake hands with men. 
So I was saying that it's really nice for me to be able to show part of our traditions, part of what we are, what we do, um, actually also being able to show what we are not. Yeah. So it's really nice, but I always have to worry about, okay, when I'm going to speak at this conference, most of the people don't even know about the handshaking thing. So I hope no one gets offended. This is one of the things that I always keep obsessing about whenever I think about going to speak at a conference. Because I imagine, you know, you don't want to be necessarily defined by that. But obviously, it's important to communicate the meaning of it. I mean, I didn't know. I had no idea about that. I like that the people think of it more as tradition than it is a religious thing. Because I know that many people are not religious. And so they would be like, what kind of religion is this that doesn't allow you to shake hands? So just don't think about religion. Think about as traditions. You know, in Japan or I don't know, um, I don't know if it's Japan or China. They don't, what they do is they bow. In Japan. Yeah. So, you know, just like the Japanese have the bow, we have this, you know, just put your hand on your chest with a nod. And that's how we greet each other. I love that. Yeah, it's, it's very, I like it. I love it. You know, I love being veiled. I love being who I am right now. A lot of people think that just because she's covering her head, this means that they have this image like she's being, um, I don't know what word to use here. Subjugated? We're not oppressed. No, no, it's more like oppressed or something. We're not. We're definitely not. At least this is what I can say about Lebanon. I know that there are women being oppressed by their men. I don't, I, I don't know why they do that. But it's very different here. And just not just just because we're veiled doesn't mean that we are oppressed. I chose to wear a veil when I was 13. I just I was sitting with my mother in my father's shop and I looked at her and I was like, I want to wear a veil. She said, OK, are you sure? I said, yes, I'm sure. I had been thinking about it for about a year before I actually did it. And I did. It was very simple. You know, just the second day I just woke up in the morning. We had a veil at home. So I just wore it and I went to school. It was very simple. You know, I can remember being around about that age and telling my parents that I wanted to be a vegetarian. <laughs> I mean, I would still be the same person, whether I was covering my hair or not. I'm still me. That's not going to change anything. Let me do our second sponsor. Okay. In fact, Sarah, when I told Jeremy Keith that I was going to be talking to you today, he asked, mm -hmm. me, he asked me to pass on his regards because I think he really wanted you to speak. Yeah, I was I was supposed to speak at Responsive Day Out, actually, in June. Uh, it was a good day, I hear. I wish I could make it then. So our next sponsor this week is one that I've been really looking forward to talking about for all kinds of reasons. It's a conference. It's a web conference. But it's not just any old web conference. Oh, no, not on your Nelly. It's Deconstruct. Oh, yes. So Deconstruct is a different type of web conference. You won't hear talk about coding techniques or how to use design software. And that's because Deconstruct is so much more than that. It's a full day of inspiring talks about technology, yeah, but also culture and the modern world. In fact, this year's theme is living with the network. Mm -hmm. Now, I've got to be honest, I've always been a bit unsure about that kind of conference in general and Deconstruct in particular. And then I listened to recordings from a couple of years ago and I just got it. 
it's it's not pretentious at all. It's thought provoking and informative, and it's even fun. And this year, all those things will be provided by Warren Ellis. He's the comic book guy. Mandy Brown, mm -hmm. and even Brian Suda. Now, speaking of recordings, the third best way to find out what Deconstruct is like is to listen to the talks from previous years. And they are all archived at archive.deconstruct.org. I love that they do that. Every single talk for the 10 years that this conference has been running, all those talks are online. It's amazing. That's, that's important for me too, by the way. The second is to ask somebody who's been before, and people really do rave about it. But the best way to find out what Deconstruct is like is to go to Brighton on Friday, the 5th of September. And that's what I'll be doing for the first time this year. And I'm really looking forward to it. I've even started saving up for a burger in something they call a brioche bun, which I hear is quite the thing in Brighton. And I might even stick around for the weekend too. There's plenty happening, including a Maker Fair, Indie Web Camp, and lots of other events that are part of Brighton Digital Festival. So don't miss Deconstruct this year. I won't, because I know it's going to be fun. If they do attend, they're going to be meeting you. Not that anybody will, will go just because of that. I can, <laughs> I can say that for definite. Get your ticket at unfinished.bz slash deconstruct. And with the offer code unfinished, the price comes down from £150 plus VAT, that's 180 quid, to £125 plus VAT. And that's more than enough saving for a milky coffee. And that's Deconstruct. Not that anybody's going to want to go and meet me, but yeah, I'll be going to Deconstruct <laughs> this year. I've never been. Really? Jeremy's always groaning because I, I haven't gone but this year this year i'm gonna go yeah i i'm sure you're gonna enjoy it you've been you've been writing on your website yes since early 2013 yes february i first heard your name when you wrote your article about why css regions matter back this february which i thought was a masterpiece by the way thank you I remember seeing um, How Come Lee's uh, destruction of CSS regions in, I think it was a list apart. Yes. Which just depressed me thoroughly. Me too. I, you know, I have respect for How Come because, you know, he co-invented CSS, but I don't think that that necessarily makes him an authority on what we should be doing now because, you know, he doesn't make websites every day like we do. Yeah, I was thoroughly, thoroughly depressed by, by his attitude really to, to CSS regions. Um, so that's why I was just so pleased when you wrote yours. Well, mine came as a very spontaneous reaction. Um, I was reading the article and I just tweeted that I disagree with him. Like, really, I was reading the article, and as soon as I started, you know, with the second paragraph, I was like, what? That's not true. So I kept reading, and the more I read, the more I, the more frustrated I felt. I had uh, tried using CSS regions for some time before he wrote the article, and I loved it. I mean, it is a very, very, very useful tool. And then came this, uh, this article, and I was like, that is so not true. I mean... He just focused on several uh, specific use cases and CSS regions wasn't designed to do those things. I mean, maybe he was right that the specification should have showed 
more uh, well different use cases that show how special or how important CSS regions are, use cases that cannot be achieved using other CSS features. So my first reaction was I just tweeted about it. And I said that I was really mad at, you know, what he was saying. And so I got a a tweet from Divya Mania. She said, um, how about you write about it? Write what you think about CSS regions. And I was like, what? You mean like write an article for a list apart? She said, yes. And for me, you know, writing for a list apart was kind of surreal back then. So I was like, I don't know if I can do that. She said, just write what you think about CSS regions. So I started doing it. I wrote over 5,000 words. Wow. Yeah, but because it was too long and I was afraid that people would just not read it because it's too long. So I I think I took like a 1,000 or 2,000 words out of it. As soon as I finished the article, uh, there was this decision from Blink to remove CSS regions. And I was like, okay, I'm definitely sure that um, Alistair Part's not going to be interested in my article anymore because CSS regions, you know, have been dropped out and nobody cares about them anymore. So I didn't know what to do with it. Um, so I ended, ended, um, publish, ended up publishing it on Flipping Awesome, which is now, I think their name changed to Modern Web. Flipping Awesome changed to Modern Web. Yeah. And it was a hit. It was really popular. I was, I had no idea people would really like it so much. I mean, it really just goes to show in my mind that. If you've got something to say and you can articulate it well, which you did. Thank you. That it doesn't matter, you know, where you are or, you know, what name you have or how, you know, what you've done before, that mm -hmm. it really is about just, you know, if you can publish, then, you know, that's, that's going to get you known for a certain thing. And I think it certainly did. I mean, I think that that put your name in front of an awful lot of people. I imagine that that has a, a good deal to do that. And the other articles that you've been writing has a really good deal to do with, for example, the amount of conference in invitations that you've been getting. Yes, actually, most of the conference invitations I've been getting are because of articles that I've written. Uh, the invitations usually include, um, I've seen your work, I've seen your articles, your writing is very solid, we would like you to speak about this topic that you wrote about. And I'm like, yeah, sure. If I can write about it, I can definitely speak about it as well. Well, that's the way it works, I think. I mean, you know, I don't get asked to speak as much as I used to, and rightly so, because I haven't been writing and putting out ideas and explaining things to people in the way that I, I used to. And I think that that's perfectly natural that people should want you to speak about something that, that you've written about. I mean, I know that that's how, for example, uh, Jeffrey and the guys at An Event Apart, that's how they choose their speakers. I would love to speak at An Event Apart someday. Someday. I'm sure you will. The first thing that I always think about when I when I think of any conference, okay, which country is it? Do I need a visa or not? And how bad is, going, is the visa application going to be? Well, there's some fabulous places in America to visit. And, you know, if conferences can take you there, then that's brilliant. I mean, that's that's what we did for so many years. I uh, I do have a conference in the US this year. It's also not announced yet. Shh, don't tell anybody. I won't. <laughs> but you've written a lot. You've written two articles now about CSS shapes as well for a list apart, I noticed. Yes. And you've just been incredibly prolific. I mean, I, 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 I'm not just 
trying to flatter you, but I do think that you've been writing the best articles about SVG and now, well, CSS and SVG that, that I've read Thank for you. a long time. And what is it, what is it about SVG now that makes it something that we are all much more interested in? Because I remember uh, there's a guy, uh, I think he works at the W3C, Doug Shepherds. Um, who's been um, an SVG expert for a long time. And I remember speaking with him at a conference ooh, five or six years ago, wow. talking about SVG. I think David Story, who worked at Opera at the time, was also writing a lot about SVG. And mm. it was very much a kind of a, a geeky thing. Yeah. It was almost like an edge case. It was interesting and kind of hardcore, but normal web designers or developers didn't really pay much attention to it. And now all of a sudden, it's glamorous. You've made it glamorous. Thank you. Well, I think it's um, it all started with retina screens and the need to make icons and fonts and stuff like that look crispier. So that's where it started, at least for me. That's when I first started hearing more about SVG. You know, we need crispier images, crispier graphics. So there is bitmap and there is SVG, scalable vector graphics. And so people started talking or are start, I started seeing and reading more articles about SVG. And I think that that's how it started. Is it also because browser support is better? Yes, definitely. Browser support is great for scalable vector graphics. Um, IEA doesn't support inline SVG, but um, I'd like to say who cares about IE8 anymore, but I'm pretty sure that a lot of people are going to disagree with me at this point. But it's very easy to provide fallback for IE8. It's something that we try to do with uh, with the Stuff and Nonsense site because at the time anyway, and this is going back, what, a year or more now since we did the redesign, but mm -hmm. there was still a... A small percentage of IE8 users, but, you know, because it's a business site, I didn't want somebody from a large company, you know, a large company with lots of money to spend. I didn't want them coming to our site using IE8 and the thing looked like a bag of bones. Mm -hmm. Whereas now I think when we come to do the next thing, I shall I'll look at the stats again, but I, I don't think that IE8 is going to be uh, an issue for us. And also... In our standard contract now, we, we've relegated IE8. Unless there's a specific use case, we don't test it for IE8 anymore for client work. Yes, I'm very lucky that most of the clients usually ask me for websites or stuff that work on modern browsers. Some of them even say we want it to work on IE10+. They don't even, they don't even care about IE9. But I guess I'm just lucky about this. Well, I'd like you to work with us on the new version of the Stuff and Nonsense header later on in the year. I'd love to. Just commissioned Josh to start looking at the illustrations for it. Um, and yes, there will be more apes. Yeah, I course. can imagine. Of course, I could expect that. Is there a zoo in Beirut? No, we have no zoos here. I can just, I can't imagine what it must be like for animals in that heat. I was reading something the other day, uh, and I think it's in South America. Mm -hmm. where there's a campaign going on to move a polar bear, a very, very sad-looking polar bear, oh. from the heat in South America back up to uh, Canada, I think. They're trying to relocate this very poor, sad-looking polar bear. He doesn't belong there. Animals should be free. I don't like visiting zoos because I can't stand seeing an animal in a cage. I can't. I just 
hate it, especially if it's a bird. I don't have a real objection to zoos. I mean, I think if the habitat is good and they are helping to maintain the species, I think that's very valuable. And particularly in the things that I like, you know, great apes. Mm-hmm. I think as long as they are kept well. I mean, for example, Chester Zoo, which is very close to us, they have a very long established and, and really important chimpanzee community. You know, they're well known for that. But anyway, we digress because we're talking about SVG. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, no, I'd like you to work on the header because um, one of the things that we tried to do on the previous version, the current version, mm-hmm. to use SVG instead of uh, obviously retina graphics, you know. I, I do remember inspecting your header and the dev tools and I was like, okay, I thought this was SVG, but yeah. it was not. The problem that we had was that the SVG files actually turned out to be larger than the PNGs, even if you added the two together. And I think that was the way that the Illustrator files had been constructed and the level of detail in the paths. Mm-hmm. So that's something which obviously I'd like you to liaise with Josh about just to make sure that we can do something that's uh, that's really, really nice with the, with the SVG and also possibly even animate elements of it as well. Yeah, that would be interesting. That could be very cool. So I think it's probably time, really, for everybody to be using SVG, isn't it? Is there any reason now, apart from the browsers, that apart from old browsers, that stop us from using SVG? No, I don't think so. And I do recommend, you know, a few days ago, I was watching Dmitry Baranovsky. I I hope I got his last name correctly. No, you did. I haven't seen Dmitry for about 100 years. Yeah, he gave a talk in Australia. Um, It was called You Don't Know SVG. It was really great. And, you know, the passion he has for SVG is incredible. I don't think I've seen anyone so passionate about SVG before. His his talk, you know, if you watch his talk, you're definitely going to want to learn SVG. He's very passionate about it. And there is no reason why no one, why someone would not be using it today. But there's something um, I haven't really dug in yet. I haven't found the time yet. But uh, I noticed that every time I added an SVG to the page, for example, there's the clipping and this clipping in CSS and SVG article that I wrote recently, I added two SVGs, one for the header image and one for the first image in the article. It loads very slowly. The article loads very slowly. My website is usually very, very fast. And, you know, whenever I opened this article, it was so slow. And it was the SVGs that took the most amount of time loading. So I'm not really sure why I should be getting into this more, you know, the performance aspect. I'm definitely sure that I'm going to be writing about it as soon as I know a little more. That's the only part that still worries me about, you know, using SVGs more. Well, I know that the weight in particular and therefore the performance was something that swayed me away from using SVG for the header. I suppose that there are elements of the elements of the header that could have been SVG. Um, regardless, but we'll, we'll have a lot of fun. I'm sure we're going to have a lot to talk about and a lot to write about when we start, um, we start playing with my new chimps. So we should really wrap it up. I, I was just thinking like, really? I mean, it, has it been an hour already? It has. I've got to try and say this now. Shekaleka. What? <laughs> Sarah. Oh, well, I'm trying to say thank you in Arabic. Ah, shukran laki. That's not what I said at all, is you know, it? No, you said shakalaka or something. <laughs> I don't know what the hell it was. Yeah, I didn't get to teach you Arabic. That's a shame. No, well, teach me one word. Come on, let's, let's do one word. Okay, shukran laki. 
Shukran lucky. Yes, you can also say shukran laka if you're talking to a man instead of a woman. Shukran lucky. Yes, you can also say just shukran. Shukran. Yes. Means thanks. Yes, I do say shukran a lot. Shukran. You're welcome. <laughs> that was terrible, wasn't it? I know. It was no, terrible. no, no. You d- you said it really well in the end. You could you should you could say shukran, and I would say ahlan wa sahlan. We need to do this more so that I can learn more Arabic, if for nothing else. Yes, yes, definitely. I'd love that. So before we go, I want to quickly mention what's happening on the show over the next few weeks. Okay. Next week, we are abandoning all the pretense that this is supposed to be a business podcast. Mm-hmm like anybody thought that anyway. Mm. And we're going to be recording a Dawn of the Planet of the Apes special. Wow. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, that's going to be special. <laughs> Nothing but... Well, we are going to talk about a few other things. I want to talk about different apes, and I want to talk about um, CGI technologies, all kinds of different stuff. But it's a Planet of the Apes special, so I'm recording that on Wednesday. It'll be out the following week. Then, Laura Calbag and... Ashley Baxter, they're taking over the show for three weeks while I'm away on holiday. Oh, nice. I have no idea what they're going to do. It'll be a surprise to me. I'm looking yeah. forward to uh, to listening for my sunbed. Stay tuned for that, and I'll be back in a month. So thanks, Sarah. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. People can follow you, Sarah, on Twitter. You are Sarah Swaydan. Yes, perfectly pronounced. Oh, I see. <laughs> Practice makes perfect. Or they can follow me, at Malarkey. To ask questions or suggest topics, you can message this show on Twitter, at UnfinishedBZ, or you can email me, he has at unfinished.bz. Thanks again to our sponsors this week. They were Native Summit and Deconstruct. You can support our show by supporting them.